This program was produced with the support of StoryHive, creativity connected by TELUS. For more information, please visit storyhive.com. My grandfather, my dada, passed away in March. His name was Rahat Alam Khan. I just called him Abu, which technically means father. See, my own dad called his father Abu, so I thought that was my grandfather's name growing up. He was a university professor in business management, but he had PhDs and masters in literature and comparative religion. He pretty much ran away to Pakistan on his own from Jaipur as a young man, living in a mosque for some time before linking up with an uncle. He'd find a trade in fixing airplanes for the Pakistani military before becoming a man of letters and pursuing his many, many degrees. My Abu was a jovial, bespectacled, and very loving man. If I had to describe him visually, I'd say he looked like a slightly chubbier South Asian version of Colonel Sanders. He contracted COVID-19 last summer and had a series of health complications since that led to his passing from this world. But this episode isn't about my Abu. It isn't really even about me. See, chances are, if you're listening to this, you also have a friend or colleague who has lost a loved one during the pandemic. Or, maybe like me, you're grieving the absence of someone, too. In my continued conversations with former hospital chaplain Ibrahim Long, I couldn't help but think about Abu, and I asked Ibrahim how to be there for people who are grieving. And like any good chaplain, he had a story to share. For the one who's helping a grieving person, for a person who is not themselves facing their own mortality, so to speak, or at least directly, but supporting someone else, it can be kind of intimidating. That's been my experience when I talk to people, like especially when I was working in a hospital, they say, you know, I can't believe you do what you do. And, you know, um, and to be working with people who, you know, have terminal illnesses. I remember the, the very first time I was called into uh, the hospital. This is before I, I did my uh, clinical pastoral education, which we call CPE. Uh, but I was still just a student at, at Harvard Seminary, and someone called the seminary and said, hey, uh, we have a Muslim patient here. We don't, have, we don't have any Muslim chaplains on staff. Could you please just send one of your students? And I was very, um, you know, Dr. Manson said, Ibrahim, can you go? And I was very honored. <laughs> and then I was like, but what do I do? You know, so I, I quickly looked through, you know, uh, you know that, that small book, Fortress of the Muslim. You know, so I was like, you know, what du'as, you know, should I say? And like, what, what, how do I actually support this person? And, and I'm driving over to the hospital. I'm, I'm thinking through my mind what I'm going to find when I get there. People crying you know, and get up to the front desk, you know, hi, you know, I'm, I'm here to see so-and-so. And so this entire time while I'm walking to the patient's room, I'm just thinking about, you know, what am I supposed to say? Well, like if someone asks me for a hadith, what is the hadith I should cite? If someone asks me for a dua, what's the dua I should cite? And I get to the room and the family's gone, and it's just the patient, and the patient is unconscious. 
And in that moment, it was like my anxiety level just kind of just dropped. And I realized that the most important thing I could do is just be sincere. And I, I just offered a prayer, you know, knowing that um, one day, inshallah, maybe I'll see uh, this person in a, in a better place. And I'd have said these words for them in a difficult time, whether they saw me at that moment or not. And, you know, so when, when we are trying to talk to someone who's going through difficulty, my, my sincere advice is, is feel free to be vulnerable. You don't have to. In fact, believing that you have, <laughs> people don't want to hear the answers. <laughs> they honestly just want your concern, you know? And in many times when people are struggling with grief, they don't even remember your words. They just remember how you made you how you made them feel, and so um, if, if someone's struggling and you see them struggling, you know, uh, and they're turning to you, it doesn't mean that like you have to take away the pain. You're not going to be able to take away the pain. You're not, but you can let them know that they're not alone. Hi, I'm Hussein, and you're listening to Chicken Soup for the Muslim Rue a podcast where we host intimate and vulnerable conversations with the Canadian Muslim community at critical junctures of their lives and the important work they do. This is part two of our conversation with Ibrahim Long, a former Muslim hospital chaplain and current youth mental health support counselor and university chaplain. In part one, we learned a little bit about Ibrahim's journey of how and why he got into this profession which was really all about service. Now, it's important to keep in mind that while hospital patients can request chaplains from their specific faith background, chaplains are trained to serve all regardless of religion. It's an inherently cosmopolitan line of work. In Ibrahim's case, his being Muslim led to pretty unique interactions, but these interactions often carried a more difficult weight I feel um, comfortable. Could you tell me about maybe one of the most difficult days on the job for you? Maybe even a day that possibly made you like reconsider, like, hey, can I even do this? Um, there was a, uh, I mean, there's probably, <sighs> I'll mention the first one that at least came to mind. So there was a uh, patient who I used to see often. Um, she was an older, you know, Catholic, just very nice, like, uh, woman. And whenever I'd visit her, if she had any food out, she'd be like, hey, join me, join me. I'd be like, no, 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 like, I'm not supposed to eat, you know, with, with the patients. And, so, no. and she'd be like, like you, you, she'd be like, you're here to comfort me, right? Uh, comfort having you as a guest comforts me. So sit down, <laughs> and and so I would I would sit down and and we would uh, enjoy each other's company. And um, one day uh, she passed away. You know she was in the hospital for a very serious uh, ailment that eventually took her life. 
when I found out that she had passed, I actually went directly to her uh, room and um, there was a family member of hers, perhaps a daughter. And when I arrived, they said, could you please, like, here I am. I'm distraught that she's passed. I, I, I'm actually a bit emotional. And, uh, and when I'm there, the, uh, the, the daughter says, could you please go get a Catholic priest? And, uh, and I, I felt like, I felt like a right that I had earned, but it wasn't necessarily the case. I mean, I can't say that. I felt like, Hey, like I'm the one that spent time with her. I'm the one that visited her. Like, and now you're telling me to go get someone who never met her to come pray for her. I, I felt like I, I was very saddened. It, it hurt. But that was what the daughter needed. You know, it was, and that's that's part of the difficulty of of, of chaplaincy. Like wh wherever one serves, is you build these relationships with individuals, but eventually they 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 move on, or or, or we do. You know, uh, there there are people who I still think about. You know, who I've met with in in hospitals, and I wonder how they're doing. Like honestly, I, I wish. You know, I just I knew how they were doing. But that's something that that just comes with <laughs> that just comes with this, you know. That we, we build these close relationships. You know, one of the things that I'm so honored uh, about regarding being a chaplain is that whenever someone opens up and they're sharing, like they're they're being vulnerable, um, that type of heart to heart is not an everyday occurrence. And mm -hmm. I'm always honored when that happens. And it, it's, it's often hard to let that person go after those things occur. Pretty soon after Ibrahim started, he was given a pager, not only for his day shifts, but also for the odd night where he might be called in for an emergency. Eventually, after a period you you go on call right they give you a page yeah so how when was that during your cp so it started off actually very early um i think you have a week of training and then the following week you get handed a pager and um and even when you're on site you have a pager anyway you know when you're when you're on uh the, the hospital site anyway but it's about whether or not you take that that pager home with you you know uh, it's obviously very nervous, you're, you know, because at least when you're on site, you have your supervisor and other chaplains who you could draw upon. But when you get called at night, they're all sleeping soundly because <laughs> they're not on call and you kind of have to figure it out on your own. And I, I honestly don't remember, uh, cause there's been just so many on call, but I actually don't remember my, my first on call you know, uh, experience, but, uh, generally speaking, uh, it, it's, I was very nervous, you know, this, this idea that someone at any point in time could call, you know, text me or not text me, page me. And then I am the only one that can respond. 
uh, to their, you know, I, I've, I've had families who, and God protect our families, who've had car accidents. And then I remember one time being called into the hospital and there was a, you know, a car accident, a young, young individual. And a whole group of fam- the family members were there. And the, the nurse pages me and says, hey, like, you got to help us out here. Uh, because not only are the, the, the immediate family, you know, upset, but they also informed many members and friends. And, and they're all just here. Like, they need some help. Wow. And how many people were there? I'd say um, somewhere around 15. Yeah. Wow. And uh, just to kind of put that in context, Usually there'd be maybe somewhere between, uh, usually if, if I'm called in to, to support a family member, you know, maybe like one to five, so three times the usual amount and very diverse. And so uh, knowing kind of like on the spot, like who should my attention be on? And even though I could see the friends of the, the the individual, the patient grieving, my focus had to I had to prioritize. My focus is immediate family members, so uh, you know, uh, had to come inside, kind of like ask for who the immediate family members are, and um, you know, p- different different chaplains have a different uh, way of providing service. The main thing is to be authentic, you know, to be authentic and. Um, one of the things that I like to do is, um, I like to get the family to talk about, uh, the individual and, and introduce them to me verbally. So tell me about so-and-so. And then, um, if they're willing, you know, I'll, I'll say a prayer afterwards that's informed by that information, you know, you know, uh, if they're known for a particular quality, I will say, thank God, thank you God for blessing this person with a sense of humor that has has uh, led to uh, many experiences of, of laughter in this family. Thank you, God, for blessing this person with um, a sense of dedication to, you know, their family, which has helped to, to, to uh, make firm the bonds of love and, and, and so forth. And, you know, to, to anyone who's listening who might themselves be uh, grappling with you know, how to make prayers for people of other faiths, you know, um, not a single thing I've said so far is actually goes against our, our Muslim theology. And of course, each person will have to grapple with uh, where their line is, right, and where they feel comfortable. For me, um, I, I like to uh, say a lot of thanks for, for how God has blessed a person's life and the, the life of the loved ones who, uh, that they're leaving behind. And I also find that very meaningful um, for, uh, for the people, uh, and, you know, the loved ones who are left behind. So in the case um, of the young person, the car crash, and with the 15 people, is that what happened? Like you, you asked them to tell you about um, what yeah, they were like? Yeah, and when you have um, a large group of people too, it can be very comforting because sometimes people don't feel like talking, but they'll, they'll be comforted by listening to others. And so they'll say, oh yeah, this person, you know, they used to do this and uh, they uh, were kind of a joker or uh, they had mentioned, you know, oh, like when we were kids, they, they pulled this joke on me or they did this and that. 
And the people are going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. And there's this other, and it gets other people talking. And here we are in a room around the patient who's, in, in this case, they were in a very, very critical condition. But now they're able to laugh. Now they're able to, yeah. to, to share with each other. Now, now, but let me be specific here. Laughing is not like the, the goal. It's about allowing people to express the fullness of their emotions in that moment, right? So to cry, yes, and to laugh about good things, yes, and to uh, mention about worries, like, but to be able to communicate what's in their heart, right? Because um, sometimes, because uh, I don't think everyone knows necessarily how to be around, like, if, if you never had an experience being around someone in a critical uh, medical condition, you might not know how to be. So you're just quiet and you just don't talk, but you have feelings about it. You have feelings about that person. And so just encouraging people to communicate if they feel comfortable and providing a means of communication, I think is, is, uh, is key. So confession time, I actually used to volunteer at the hospital myself. It was part of my immigrant parents' hopes that I would become eventually a doctor, but unfortunately for them, and hopefully fortunately for you and I, I'm making this podcast instead. Go figure. Well, at the hospital, my volunteer job was to roll a big, heavy metal cart called the book cart. It was this solid cart with an upper and lower half parted in the middle full of books that I'd roll around the fourth and fifth floors of Grey Nuns Hospital. Like Ibrahim, I'd knock on patient doors and offer them books to read, let them browse the selection. More than anything, it was about trying to make a conversation and connection with the patients. One of the most interesting things I learned from this job, and this will be no surprise to anyone that's ever worked in an old folks home, was that the older ladies at the hospital adored Harley Quinn romance novels. These are like spicy, pulpy pastroners with a painted Fabio knockoff on the cover and his uh, buxom paramour. And these ladies are old enough to be my grandmother. So, you know, picture a 14-year-old gangly Pakistani-Canadian teenager awkwardly reading out the back of these books and helping these women pick out steamy pieces of fiction for the week. Anyways, keeping in mind what I just said, um, one time I came into the room of an elderly gentleman in palliative care. So I do my knock. I ask if I can come in and I start doing my spiel. I tell him that hey, we have mysteries, we have magazines, we have classics, you name it, pointing out the genres on the shelf. He squints, gesturing for me to bring the cart closer, and he thumbs a few of the books before putting them back, dissatisfied, not saying a word. So I'm getting ready to go when he looks at me and all of a sudden barks at me, hey kid, give me the sexy ones. It's wild and bizarre even to imagine laughing around someone in a hospital bed caught between life and death or people spending their time in recovery, perhaps even their last days on earth, flipping through a spicy romance novel. But 
it's important to remember, I think, that hospitals are that in-between place. That they're not just places of sorrow, but also laughter and life itself. Hospital chaplains help people process those range of states and emotions in the language of faith. I asked Ibrahim if he had any last funny stories to share about his time before we close out the episode. He didn't deliver exactly what I was looking for, but well, just listen to what he has to share. More lighthearted, uh, what's a story or interaction that you look back on and that just makes you like laugh? Was, that was kind of funny or ridiculous or just interesting. Um, it's a funny, funny story. Let's see. Hmm. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> so much of what we've been talking about, right? Has been has been on uh, another another area. Uh, you know. Um, uh, Okay, I'll mention this. And it's not funny per se, but I hope it, it, it's heartwarming. That uh, there was a, um, a couple, uh, an older couple who used to come to the hospital. Um, they were foster parents. And they actually used to specifically foster children that, were, uh, that had medical issues. Like basically children that other parents did not want. And... Um, I remember one time they're coming to visit one of their uh, foster children that was in the hospital and they were waiting to, to see him and they're waiting uh, in the waiting room. And the uh, foster mother had with her uh, a, just a baby, like newborn baby, like maybe not even a month or, or, you know, maybe a month or so old. And, the baby was crying, 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 and shaking, shaking, shaking. And I feel like if I was holding, you know, this baby, I'd be so embarrassed. You know, the, the waiting room was full. But the, the, the mother was just so focused on, shh, like, so calm and so present with the child. And then afterwards, when the baby had finished kind of like convulsing, kind of shaking, the the baby looked back into the eyes of the foster mother and just smiled and i found out later that the baby had been born addicted and was going through addiction convulsions right like shaking and that here is this woman, like if I saw an angel on earth, who, while this child is going through this pain that she should not have experienced and had to have experienced, that there is this woman that was able to bear with her the pain. And that look that the baby gave to the foster mother and smile to me, that was such a gift, you know? And so uh, we have experiences like this in life. And I feel like chaplaincy 
is an opportunity to see people in different ways and to appreciate uh, people in different ways. And while that's not a, a funny story, uh, it's something that, as you could tell, uh, really impacted me when I saw it. Yeah, that's beautiful. Given the range of emotions a chaplain has to process within themselves and navigate with other people, given all these difficulties they face and help others face, I had to ask Ibrahim one last question. What, what keeps you going on and, and, and motivated when you deal with that? Ultimately, I'd have to say, uh, I, I believe it, all of it is better for me. Like I, I, I'm the one that benefits, you know, um, I remember when I first started uh, my chaplaincy training at the hospital, I just sort of like thought to myself, this, this feels like like a school of tarbia, <laughs> you know, like uh, here I am like being taught and trained like about tawakkul, about faith in God, about take, getting rid of the nafs, about, you know, focusing on what the other person needs, not just yourself. And like, uh, and, and all of it in doing things as beloved to God, right? I remember one time asking um, Imam uh, Zaid Shakir, you know, may, may God preserve him. Like, uh, you know, I was like, hey, I'm a, I'm a chaplain. Um, do you have any advice for me? And he, his advice was, yeah, thank God for uh, for uh, guiding you to to such a position and profession in life that 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 focuses so much on helping others. And I was like, I, I really appreciated that. <laughs> you know, like. Uh, you know, whatever God guides us to, hopefully, like, it's something of, of benefit for dunya and akhirah, you know, this life and the next. Um, and I'm, I'm uh, you know, this work of chaplaincy, like, ultimately, like, even while I'm sitting with other people, uh, ultimately, they're, they're also providing me an opportunity to talk about God and reflect. So it, it sounds like to me, it's like getting just to be a chaplain even with the difficulty, it's, it's its own gift. Chaplaincy is an invitation uh, to serve, and that, that comes with its own difficulties, but the reward and, and the feeling that, you know, people will be called to different things, and I, I feel God called me to be a chaplain. This episode of Chicken Soup for the Muslim Roo was written and produced by myself, Hussein Khan, and edited by the wonderful Amir Javed. Thank you so much to Chaplain Long for taking the time to speak to me. The beautiful artwork you see on TELUS as well as Instagram was made by the talented Rizwan Ali, the very patient Matt Waterworth and Jessica Gibson of the National Screen Institute mentored and supported me throughout the process of getting this podcast done. It would not be possible without them or the generous funding from Telestory Hive, who you'll hear from now. This program was produced with the support of Telus.